This is part two in our Origin of Life sermons. We're in a series called Origin Stories, a study of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Chapter 12 zooms in on Abraham, but the first 11 chapters of Genesis talk about the origin story of all humanity. And if you uh, did not hear Pastor James' message last week, I encourage you to go listen. He just laid some great uh, foundation for us on this question of where did life come from. And today, today's message is built upon the assumption that you have encountered an assertion in society that says the biblical account of creation contradicts what we have learned about the origin of the universe from our study of nature. The Bible and science contradict each other in this area. And so if you want to uh, believe the biblical account of creation, you have to do it by closing your eyes to the scientific evidence. You have to choose. You're either going to believe the Bible or you're going to believe uh, science. When I took Origin of Life in college, Stephen Jay Gould, at the time uh, one of the leading biologists in the world, I remember he held up a Bible and he said, many of you come to this class and your understanding of the origin of life comes from this book. And I predict that Many of you, when this class is over, will have replaced you know, this biblical origin story with a much more scientific, naturalistic understanding of how we came to be. And uh, as I've told you a few weeks ago, that did happen for my roommate, and it was tragic. Uh, it did not happen for me. So is it true is it true that in order to believe what the Bible teaches us about creation, we must close our eyes to the evidence of the natural world? And I'm going to argue today that no, no. James reminded us last week that God has given us two sources of knowledge, revelation and reason, and both are legitimate sources of knowledge. And as Christians, we need to respect and believe both. Revelation is the Bible. And, and there are things that we cannot know apart from God just telling us in his word. And we thank the Lord for the Bible. And there is so much that we learn from the Bible. But because we are created in the image of God, unlike animals, we humans are created in the image of God and we can reason. And in fact, God has given us the task of uncovering truth from uh, applying reason to the natural world, whether that's philosophy or science. What is the scientific method? It is a tool that we use to uncover truth from the natural world. And you know what? There's a lot of truth that we have covered through reason. And so our understanding is comprised of both what we learn from Revelation, and what we learn from reason. And as Christians, we respect both. Now, by faith, 
we believe that there will be no true conflict between what the Bible teaches, because what the Bible teaches is 100% true, and what we discover from studying the natural world. There will be no true conflict because all truth is God's truth. But there can be apparent conflict, right? Absolutely. And when there appears to be a conflict between what the Bible teaches and what we're learning about the natural world, we need to examine our interpretation. Because there's no true conflict, but there is probably... There is an issue with our interpretation. Either we have incorrectly interpreted the Bible and we are saying the Bible teaches something that doesn't in fact teach, or we are uh, misinterpreting the natural world. We have to understand that theories are not facts, even when scientists buy into the theory wholeheartedly. now, Pastor James last week gave a, a, a brilliant example of this, and he, he talked about how in Copernicus's day, scientists were 100% convinced that uh, the earth was at the center of the universe. And then Copernicus came along and said, actually, uh, the earth rotates around the sun. The sun is at the center of our solar system. And uh, scientists you know, were 100% convinced that, no, in fact, uh, this, the earth was at the center of the universe, and they were all wrong. But on the other hand, you had Martin Luther, the great Martin Luther who, uh, who triggered the Reformation, and we love and respect Martin Luther, but in this, in this case, Martin Luther believed that Copernicus's uh, heliocentric vision of the of the solar system was at odds with the teachings of the Bible, and he pointed out some scriptures that he thought taught that that the Earth was in fact the center, not the sun. And he said Copernicus and and his followers are are teaching something at odds with the Bible. Well, the more we came to understand uh, the natural world. What, what did it do? It forced Christians to go back to the Bible and ask the question, okay, uh, were we possibly incorrect in what we thought the Bible was teaching? And the answer to that was yes. When the Bible says the, you know, the sun rises and the sun sets, it's not describing you know, reality from a scientific point of view. It's describing reality from uh, our, our point of view. So we need to have some humility on both sides of the equation. And Pastor James pointed this out yesterday. He said, on one hand, uh, we need to not too quickly say, we know what the Bible teaches, and therefore, I don't care what science says, uh, science is wrong, and just immediately discount what, what the scientists are saying. We need to have some interpretive humility and be willing to uh, based on what is being learned from reason, go back and say, well, does that help us better understand what the Bible is teaching? Now, we can go uh, way too far here. I don't want to suggest that all the teachings of the Bible are open to interpretive debate, because they're not. There's a whole lot of, of the biblical teaching that is unambiguous. It's clear. We know what the Bible is teaching. It teaches it not in just one place where there is a question mark about the genre and and the rules of interpretation. It's taught multiple places throughout Scripture, 
and there's no question what the Bible's teaching. And so, uh, you can't, there's lots of the Bible that you can't say, well, we just agree to disagree. I have a different interpretation. Well, your interpretation is flat out wrong. But in this, or my interpretation, I mean, but in this particular situation, as it, re- as it relates to Genesis chapters 1, 1 through 2, 11, this, the biblical account of creation, uh, I believe that there is some, uh, in, uh, there's some room for interpretive debate and some interpretive flexibility, uh, because predominantly because of the issue of genre and what genre is it, and we'll talk a little bit about that later. On the other hand, we don't want to be, uh, also, we, we need to have some humility on the scientific side and uh, not, not act like our scientific theories are, in fact, are facts, right? Because theories are not fact. And sometimes we encounter uh, the scientific uh, elites, in a sense, some, some assertions of, we know, and you Christians, with your simplistic biblical understanding of the origin of the universe, you know, you are wrong. The biblical account of creation and the grand evolutionary theory are at odds with each other on almost every point. And what I want to do is I want to... I want to examine the biblical account of creation and ask the question, how confident are we that the Bible teaches these, these aspects of the origin of life? And then I want to look at the scientific, the grand evolutionary story and ask, uh, what's the real evidence uh, for these different claims? And then we're going to, we're going to really be asking the question, um, does the scientific evidence, is it so weighty that it really demands that we um, take another look at our understanding of the biblical account of creation? In other words, do I need to go beyond just a f- straightforward, face value reading of the creation story? All right, let's contrast. On one hand, you have the biblical teaching of creation, and on the other hand, the grand evolutionary story of how life began. And uh, here they are, broken down in their parts. Number one, you read the Bible, and the Bible seems to teach that God created the universe. The grand story of evolution says the universe created itself. Read the Bible, suggests that God acted to bring about life. There would not be life if God hadn't said, life start. Grand evolutionary story says life originated from natural, unguided processes. The Bible teaches that the diversity of life is explained by separate acts of creation. Day one, he creates plants. Uh, you know, he then creates on another day, he creates the, the birds and, and the fish, and another day, the people. Grand evolutionary theory says the diversity of life is explained by the process of random mutation and natural selection. The Bible seems to teach that everything was made in six 24-hour days. Grand evolutionary theory says that life evolved over billions of years. The Bible seems to teach that the earth is young. Grand evolutionary theory says earth is ancient. The Bible seems to teach that humans are uniquely created in God's image. Grand evolutionary theory says humans are simply more evolved animals. All right. First question. 
for these points of the uh, creation story, how confident are we that the Bible teaches these things? Number one, God created the universe. Clearly taught in the Bible, not just in Genesis, those first two chapters of Genesis, multiple times throughout the Bible, it is asserted unambiguously that God created the universe. So, uh, how clear is this biblical teaching? It's very clear. There's high clarity. Uh, and so, for example, in Hebrews, in the New Testament, we read, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Okay, what about this second point, that God acted to bring about life? Biblical clarity is quite high, that God breathed uh, life into uh, into the world that it didn't just spontaneously generate. Uh, what about the argument that, uh, what about this point that di- the diversity of life is explained by separate acts of creation? On day one, he creates this, and day two, he creates that, and day three, he creates that. Um, I would say medium, and only because of the question of genre. So really quickly, um, one of the rules for interpreting the Bible is that you, you have to take into account the genre. So when the Bible says the mountains and the hills, they clap their hands, we just, in, we just understand that's poetry, and poetry doesn't demand that we claim that the mountains and the hills have literal hands, right? So there's genre, uh, there is poetic genre, there's histor- uh, historical genre, there's apocalyptic, which is, which is prophecy, uh, and so there are multiple types of genre in the Bible, and each of those genres have some interpretive rules, and it's important that you apply those when you're trying to understand the scriptures. Well, <clears throat> there seems to be consensus that Genesis chapters 1, 1 through 2, 11 are un- a unique genre. We're not really sure exactly uh, what kind of a genre it is. It doesn't seem to be replicated anywhere else in the scriptures. And so there's a little bit of uh, uncertainty around the rules. Okay, so what does it mean? It means you're, you're asking the question, you know, clearly the Bible is teaching things through the, the, the creation account, these first two chapters. But is it trying to teach us what we would think of as you know, here is the, pers- the scientific mechanism God, you know, used to create the earth. Here's exactly how long it took. Is it trying to give us that kind of data or, or other data or some combination? And, and so that's predominantly why Bible-believing Christians who take seriously the Word of God and want to deal with it, deal with it with integrity, allow some uh, some room for debate over these questions of what exactly is being taught and must we insist that Christians uh, understand the origin of life a particular way. So I give it a medium for myself, a medium clarity. What about everything was made in six days, six 24-hour days? Again, I give it a medium, uh, partly because 
Even the word for day, yom in Hebrew, doesn't necessarily mean 24-hour periods of time, although that is the, the, the most direct understanding. There's some flexibility even in the word, uh, in addition to potentially the genre. However, we do read in Exodus chapter 20, outside of the first two chapters, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. But the point of that text is teaching that there was a, com- a, a completion to, and a time of rest. Is it really, and, and it's applied to our human week, but um, I still think it's a little uncertain. What about this uh, point that the earth is young? Though the reason we would believe the earth is young from the Bible is because, you know, uh, creation happens in six days, and then we're told about the Adam and his descendants. We're given these genealogy charts, and you can actually, you know, take these genealogy charts, and your conclusion would be the earth is probably no more than 10,000 years old. Uh, But there are a number of ways to go about this. One is, do do the genealogies actually give us every human who ever lived? Or is it sort of cherry-picking the ones that are are important uh, in the story? Uh, And um, again, the question of whether these days are 24 hours. Another question is, between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, was there potentially uh, a time period of billions of years? So I I actually give this one a low biblical clarity. And that, by the way, is not saying it's not saying the Bible is, you know, low on the truth scale. It's just our confidence in what exactly the Bible is teaching on this point, I think, is, is somewhat low. What about, finally, the, this, um, the Bible teaches humans are uniquely created in the image of God, and that is, uh, we know, that's highly certain the Bible teaches that point in many different places. Uh, one of the most obvious, I think, is Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Uh, The penalty in the Bible for killing a human is always greater than killing an animal because humans aren't animals. They are uh, uniquely created, and they're the only ones created in the image of God, and therefore to kill a human comes with a greater penalty. So I would give that clarity high. Okay, so we have, we've looked at the, Biblo, the biblical creation account, how, uh, how certain are we of our interpretation, which is really just a straightforward face value uh, interpretation. Now let's look at the different points of the grand evolutionary story, and we'll ask the question of how weighty is the evidence supporting this claim? And that's different from how great is the consensus Amongst the scientists, right? Because like the scientists in Copernicus today, they can be, there can be consensus around a false theory. Evolution is a theory. But if you, are, if you are limiting yourself to explaining the origin of life apart from God with purely naturalistic uh, mechanisms, then evolution's the best theory we've got. But that's... That's why people are buying into it so much. If you don't want to uh, believe that God created everything 
and you want to uh, be a fulfilled intellectual who has an explanation for you know, the origin of life apart from God, you have got to be committed to evolution. In fact, Richard Dawkins, uh, the um, very aggressive atheist who challenges uh, Christianity, uh, he once quipped that Darwin's uh, theory of evolution, this mechanism of random mutation, natural process, that's what gives atheists, allows atheists to be intellectually fulfilled. Because it grants them uh, a plausible explanation for the origin of the world that does not demand the existence of God. But we don't, we're not asking the question how, how much consensus is there. We're asking the question how much evidence is there for these different points. So here we go. Number one, the universe created itself. God didn't create the universe. The universe just came into being. I say that the evidence for that is uh, low to zero. Now, there are, there are theories being postulated as to how matter might have come from non-matter, but they are all speculative, and none of them have yet captured uh, the, the imagination or buy-in of the scientific community. For example, in 2018, in Forbes magazine, there was an article titled, How Did Matter in Our Universe Arise from Nothing? Authored by Ethan Siegel, Ph.D. in astrophysics, I believe. And he writes this. Now, he's hopeful, but I want you to look beneath his hope. The fact that we exist and are made of matter is indisputable. The question of why our universe contains something, matter, instead of nothing, from an equal mix of matter and antimatter, is one that must have an answer. This century, advances in precision electroweak testing, collider technology and experiments probing particle physics beyond the standard model, may reveal exactly how it happened. And when it does one of the greatest mysteries in all of existence will finally have a solution. So he's hopeful that we're going to figure it out. But what I, need, what I want you to hear is that as of today, uh, there is no solution, there is no evidence for the universe creating itself. There are theories that maybe will be shown to have been, be plausible. But as of now, they're not there. So, how compelled should I feel as a Christian to give up my biblical understanding of God created the universe because the evidence of science is just showing that that is, you know, stupid or anti-intellectual or that I have to close my eyes to the evidence in order to believe that God created the universe? I don't feel compelled by that at all because it's, there is no evidence. It's just speculation. How about this one? Life originated from natural, unguided processes. So there is this, in addition to how did matter come from no matter, there's this question of how did life begin? And you've probably heard the theory of the primordial soup as it's popularly uh, thought of. Uh, amino acids and proteins in in this water water over the earth long 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 time ago and then 
Um, maybe it was lightning, maybe it was radiation, that, but somehow it triggers uh, this, uh, it triggers life, and all of a sudden you've got a single-celled organism. And then from that develops more complex organisms to eventually uh, life is, it, with all of this diversity that we see today. Now, that's, that is a theory, but has, does, you know, what's the evidence? What's the evidence? Well, here is Andrew Knoll, a professor at Harvard, author of Life on a Young Planet, The First Three Billion Years of Life. And uh, he was being interviewed by Noah in 2004, and he writes, he says this. The short answer is we don't really know how life originated on this planet. There have been a variety of experiments that tell us some possible roads, but we remain in substantial ignorance. Now that said, I think what we're looking for is some kind of molecule that's simple enough that it can be made by physical processes on the young earth, yet complicated enough that it can take charge of making more of itself. That, I think, is the moment when we cross that great divide and start moving towards something that most people would recognize as living. So again, he's hopeful, but what's he saying? How great is the evidence for this teaching of the grand evolutionary theory that life originated from natural, unguided processes. God had nothing to do with it. There is no evidence. There are these variety of experiments that tell us some possible roads. So how compelled do I need to be as a Christian to give up my belief that comes from the Bible that God breathed life into the inanimate world? I don't feel very compelled. The evidence isn't forcing me to give that up? At least not yet. Nor do I think it will. All right, how about this one? Life's diversity is explained by random mutation and natural selection. This is the great contribution that Darwin gave. Uh, Darwin said, listen, you take that little single-celled organism... And over billions of years of little random mutations at the tiniest level, and those random mutations uh, give that little organism or or more complex organisms later, give it an edge up, and then that advantage will get passed on because that little organism with its new mutation survives better than than the previous generation. And then... Over time, that explains, over the course of a billion years, that explains life's diversity it's, uh, and how we got what we got today. And I'll tell you, this is, this is the, the mechanism of evolution. And if that mechanism, this was the big aha for the, behind the evolutionary uh, theory, and if that mechanism breaks down... Uh, then, then it is a big, a big issue for evolutionary grand story, and this this theory of random mutation plus natural selection has never been uh, weaker than it is today. And and here, let me t- tell you a little bit about Michael Behe. 
Uh, he is a professor at Lehigh University. He's a microbiologist. He's written a number of books. I just powered through his last one written in 2019 called Darwin Devolves. Now, Behe got his Ph.D. and began to teach at Lehigh um, without ever questioning this Darwinian random mutation plus natural selection is the mechanism for li behind life. And then he began to question it. And he writes this, he says, when one starts to treat Darwinism as a hypothesis about the biochemical level of life rather than an assumption, it takes about 10 minutes to conclude it is radically incomplete. And I, around 2000, he wrote a book that made quite a splash in the scientific community uh, and in which he talked about the principle of irreducible complexity. Uh, think about a mouse trap. A mouse trap, uh, the, at least the one that I was messing with the other day, has nine parts to it, and a single part missing, and that mouse trap does not work. Every single part of the mouse trap is necessary. So you could have a mouse trap with actually, I think it's eleven parts. You could have a mouse trap with ten parts, and the mouse can walk all over it. But it's only when you have all 11 parts will that mousetrap function. And, and so Darwin's theory of random mutation plus natural selection explains how we get life. Well, think about a mousetrap. A random mutation doesn't get you from nothing to a mousetrap. It might get you one little part of the mousetrap, one of the 11 pieces. And that, actually, that's an overstretch. So... There's no advantage to a mousetrap with six pieces, seven pieces, eight pieces. Make sense? This is, the, pro, this is the, uh, the principle of irreducible complexity. And then Behe, in his book, uh, talks about the bacteria flagellum. A bacteria is a single-celled organism, one of the simplest forms of life in nature. And the flagellum is this little tail on the bacteria that moves it around. Well, back in Darwin's day, and actually not, up until not that long ago, we did not have the tools to look at life with that level of granularity that closely. But now we've got amazing tools, and we keep, we, we're able to look at life on a, a more microscopic level than ever before. And so what Behe has, uh, was pointing out is that the bacteria flagellum has almost, thir uh, almost, I think it's 39 parts that are, that are all necessary for the flagella to work. It's like an outboard motor, and you take a single part away, and it makes no sense. It doesn't work. So how, do you how does random mutation plus natural selection get us to this, this bacteria flagellum, this sort of outboard motor for the single-celled organism? He said it, it can't. Now, he wrote that book almost 20 years ago, and uh, in his 2019 book, he said there have been multiple attempts in the scientific community to uh, provide a naturalistic explanation for the flagellum, and all of them uh, have failed. Now, here's what Charles Darwin said back uh, when he first postulated his theory. Uh, he said it in The Origin of Species, written in 1859. He said, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed 
by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. And Behe says that is exactly what microbiology has now uh, shown. In 2004, uh, there was a scientific dissent from Darwinism published and an invitation to scientists to, uh, you know, demonstrate their concern with uh, the random mutation plus, uh, plus natural selection explanation for how we got our, our life. And here it is. So if you sign on to this statement, this is what you're signing on to. Quote, we are skeptical of claims for the ability of random mutation and natural selection to account for the complexity of life. Careful examination of the evidence for Darwinian theory should be encouraged. So 2004, this first came out. There have now been over a thousand scientists. In order, to, in order to sign this, you have to either be teaching at some university in the world or you have to have a PhD in the sciences. Over a thousand. I took a picture here of just page one. There are 27 pages. But look, on page one, you've got member of the National Academy of Sciences, you have Harvard University, Texas A&M, uh, University of Georgia, member of the Brazilian Academy of Sciences, and on and on. So what I want you to understand is that uh, Darwinian's mechanism for how we got life is, has never been weaker than it is today. And there are a whole lot of scientists who say, no, it does not actually explain the diversity of life. And so I give it a, a, I give it a, a low weight, and I personally think, well, hey, it's, it's uh, being so challenged in the, in the scientific community, why should I feel the need to give up my understanding of the, of, of the, of the Bible's origin story? I don't feel compelled to do it. All right, what about this, what about this uh, claim that life evolved over billions of years? Well, I've given that one medium weight. Uh, there, apparently, we have fossils of life on Earth that are 3.7 billion years old. And, of course, that means you have to buy into the dating system, uh, scientific dating system. But that would suggest uh, life on Earth from a long period uh, long ago. But uh, what about the idea that you know, one species slowly evolved and became another species and, and the tree, you know, the evolutionary tree of life. Well, um, the fossils, the fossil record is not a strength for uh, Dar Darwinian evolution. In fact, it's a weakness because the fossil record uh, is static, which means you see a species come into the fossil record and it just stays a species and then it goes away. There are, there's nothing in the fossil record that suggests, uh, that demonstrates species to species change, which is what we call macroevolution as opposed to microevolution, which is change within a species. In fact, Darwin recognized the fossil problem for his theory. He says, geology assuredly does not reveal any such finely graduated organic change. In other words, the fossil record doesn't suggest that what I'm teaching is correct. And this perhaps is the most obvious and gravest objection which can be urged against my theory. The explanation lies, as I believe, 
in the imperfect or the extreme imperfection of the geological record. So what's what's been the response Darwin and other evolutionists, it's just been, well, hey, the fossil record is not complete, therefore the big gaps, um, you know, they're not a, they don't disprove our theory. Fine. Philip Johnson pointed that out in his book, Darwin on Trial, back in 1993. Darwin's arguments could establish at most that the fossil problem was not fatal. They could not turn the absence of confirming evidence into an asset. So, Life evolved over billions of years. I, I think there, it seems that there's some evidence for life being around for billions of years. There's been some evolution. I would uh, argue that it's micro, not macro evolution. What about the claim that the earth is ancient? And I give this one a pretty high mark. The evidence seems to be pretty weighty that the earth is ancient. Uh, and it's evidence from multiple sources. It's radiometric dating, uh, dating of rocks, dating of moon rocks and meteorites, uh, dating of light, the Doppler shift, red, red light in the universe. How long did it take light from uh, pla- uh, planets far away to get to us? And, and so here, here's a group of Christians who definitely believe in old earth, Uh, They write this. uh, This comes from the BioLogos website. Many different and complementary scientific measurements have established with near certainty that the universe and the earth are billions of years old. So I'm by no means an expert in this. I'll just take that. Uh, It appears that the evidence is pretty strong for an old earth. And then finally, what about this assertion Uh, part of the grand evolutionary story, that humans are simply more evolved animals. And my answer to that is, what's your your evidence? And the evidence that gets pointed to is the similarity in sort of structure that humans share with other animals. But the alternative, I mean, that, that could also, that's also an argument, just as much an argument for the idea that there's one creator who just replicated his genius across his creation. So I think it's a pretty uh, a weak argument. I don't, I don't think the scientific uh, clarity there is very strong. Plus, show me the fossil record of, of how uh, humans came from animals. Even though you go and look at a most scientific museums, and they'll show you these apes slowly uh, standing more erect until they're humans. That's just, uh, I don't see the fossil record actually showing that. Okay, so let's bring it together. We've looked at the, with the biblical account of a creation, how clearly is this taught in Scripture? How clearly, or, yeah, how sure are we that this is taught in Scripture? And then we contrast with the grand evolutionary theory What's the weight of the evidence? Now I put these together in some slides. Ready? As it relates to God who created the universe, the, we are very, the biblical clarity is high. The uh, scientific evidence is low for the alternative idea that the universe created itself. Therefore, I feel no, I am compelled in no way to give up my straightforward reading of the Bible. I don't feel the need to go reinterpret or reexamine my interpretation of Scripture. I believe that God created the universe. Uh, how about this? God acted to bring about life. 
we're very you know, high confidence that's what the Bible teaches. What about the alternative story? Life originated from natural unguided processes. The scientific evidence is low to nothing. So I feel no need to re-examine a straightforward biblical interpretation of God acted to bring about life. How about life? How about the diversity of life is explained by separate acts of creation? Pretty confident the Bible teaches that. Not, not sure. Not 100% sure. Uh, what about... The, science, the evidence for diversity is explained by random mutation natural selection. I just think that's pretty darn weak. And so I don't feel the need to give up a, a straightforward reading of the Bible on that. How about everything was made in six days? Well, I think the Bible's clarity on that is medium. And uh, as a, what about life evolved over bi- billions of years? Well, if you understand it in terms of life's been around for billions of years and you're talking microevolution, not macroevolution, I'd say that's okay. You got about even on that. Put a gun to my head and say, Mike, you have to choose. I'm going to say, God created the world in six days, 24 hour days. I get to heaven and I'm shown wrong. I'm not going to feel like, God, you lied to me. Oh, okay. My interpretation was a little off there. Earth is young. Eh. I think the biblical clarity on that's pretty low. Earth is ancient. Scientific evidence seems pretty darn weighty. So, you know what? If I had to, I'd say, yeah, it's the earth is billions of years rather than thousands of years old. But again, I hold that. It's not that big of a deal, in my opinion. Uh, and then finally, humans are uniquely created in God's image. I'm very confident that's what the Bible teaches. Humans are simply more evolved animals. I think the evidence for that is very low. So I am not abandoning a straightforward reading of the text. So in my, my personal, I, and about every, t- about every 10 years I re-examine, <laughs> I sort of run through this process. But as of today, I am I'm not compelled by the scientific evidence to abandon a straightforward reading of the Bible, uh, except for this question of, is the earth young or ancient? So that's the way I process this. I hope that helps you. I certainly hope it lets you off the hook, uh, because you know what? This claim, that this assertion that we all encounter... Uh, that in order to believe the Bible's origin story, you have to close your eyes to the, to the scientific evidence and you have to be an anti-intellectual, uh, that these two, you know, science and the Bible are at odds with each other. And uh, I, I think that that is, there, there's no doubt that that is a story being told. That's a claim being made. Uh, and it's creating a conflict in the hearts of many Christians and it's causing doubt that's unnecessary. And I hope that this message will have uh, kind of taken the pressure off in that. Let's pray. Lord, you did create this universe and you created us and you have a purpose behind everything. And you are trustworthy and your word is trustworthy. And Lord, I thank you that you have given us reason. Lord, I pray that that if anybody has been um, harboring doubts, uh, concerned that they can't trust the Bible because of this 
claim that's being made. I pray that that you would use this message to just settle their hearts so that they can read the Bible with more confidence of its truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.